Well, good evening, Hallows Church. It's good to see you as always. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors at the Hallows Church. I, my ministry is primarily focused over in West Seattle, and uh, so I haven't been around Fremont quite as much, but it's good to be back. It's good to see you guys. Um, head on over, if you would, to the passage our friend Chaz read just a few minutes ago. That's Mark chapter 3, verses 6 to 21. This passage that we're stepping into today, it, it kind of paints an interesting picture of three different types of people in the world when it comes to Jesus. There are fans, foes, and followers. Now, each one of these groups, they all want a piece of Jesus. They're all going after him in one way or another for one reason or another. But the truth is they differ entirely in what they want from Jesus and what they want for Jesus. And one of the things we're going to explore here together as we unpack this this passage is, is that not only are fans, foes, and followers three different types of people in the world when it comes to Jesus, there are also three different competing aspects or elements within the hearts and lives of each and every Christian. This passage here, it opens up with a pretty strange scene. It's a pretty dramatic scene, in fact. We've got this crowd situation happening, and it's more than just a, a crowd. Mark Two times in this passage, he calls it a great crowd. A great multitude of people were forming. Many scholars, in fact, believe that this scene is taking place as Jesus' popularity was really taking off. Many were seeking him at this point, and they were traveling great distances to see him. In verses 7 and 8 here, they tell us where these people were coming from. They were coming from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. And if you look at a map of this area at the time, uh, you would see that these places that are mentioned by Mark, they kind of trace out many of the same places that Jesus had been traveling in his ministry up to this point. And so what's clear is that word was spreading, people were talking, and Jesus' popularity, it was rising. And what's interesting as well is that Some of these places, like Judea and Jerusalem, these were Jewish provinces. Other places, like Tyre and Sidon, these were Gentile provinces. And Idumea and Galilee, these were very pluralistic, multi-ethnic, multi-racial areas. And so the people in this crowd, they came from different places, they came from different cultures, they held very different worldviews. And the truth is, there were very real tensions that existed as well between some of these groups of people. And yet we see that this didn't really matter when it came to Jesus, right? His, his popularity kind of cut across all that. It cut across various uh, societal boundaries and various cultural boundaries. And the passage tells us as well, not just where these people came from, but, but why they were coming as well. And the reason why they were coming, we see in, in verse 8, is because they had, they had heard about all that Jesus was doing. And as we've been learning in our journey through the book of Mark, Jesus had been doing much up to this point. He had been performing many miracles, many signs and wonders. He had been healing people of various physical ailments. He had been delivering people from various forms of demonic oppression and bondage. He had been meeting needs around him in supernatural and sensational ways. And so word was spreading. People were talking. Jesus, at this point, he was a celebrity in every way. 
He had gone viral. He had paparazzi that wanted to track his every move and his every miracle to see what he was going to do next and to see what he was going to say next. And so his popularity, it was surging. It was surging so much that some of these crowd scenes would develop into dangerous situations. In verse 7, we see that Jesus and the disciples, they were trying to withdraw from this crowd. They were trying to withdraw to the sea to where their boats were. But evidently, this crowd wasn't having it. This crowd was quite determined. Verse 7 tells us that the crowd followed Jesus and his disciples to the sea as they, as they tried to withdraw. And get this, in verse 9, Jesus had to tell his disciples to have a boat ready because of this crowd so they could extract themselves quickly if they needed to because, because Jesus thought they might be crushed by this crowd. And that's the kind of confused and chaotic scene that we're stepping into here, a great crowd of many people. A great crowd that included many fans of Jesus, fans who had heard all about what Jesus was doing and who, and who wanted in on the action too. They wanted to see what Jesus might do next. They wanted to see what Jesus might have for them in their own lives too. And so these fans, they were, they were crowding Jesus with their needs and with their desires to the point where Jesus himself grew concerned that they might be crushed by the crowd. And so many were seeking him, but the truth is that many who were seeking him were doing so as a means to an end. They were doing so as a means to their own ends. And it's not too surprising, really, in this particular situation at this time. At this point, many in the crowd did not fully understand who Jesus was or why he came. He had not fully clarified his message and his mission in that way. But they had heard about all that he was doing, and they wanted to see for themselves what all the hype was about, and they wanted to see for themselves what he could potentially do for them, too. Now, fans, of course, take many different forms. Many fans in the crowd were likely curious about Jesus. They were seeking him. They were seekers in some fashion. Some were surely interested and intrigued by Jesus. Some probably wanted to be entertained by Jesus and his miracles. And surely many others had very real and very pressing physical or spiritual needs that they hoped Jesus would, would solve for them. But fundamentally, fans of Jesus are those who look to Jesus to, to advance their own agendas without necessarily being, being concerned about him and, and his agenda. So fans look to Jesus to advance their agenda and fundamentally, fans of Jesus are more concerned with, with what Jesus can do for them than, than who he might be to them. Fundamentally, fans of Jesus are more uh, focused on what they can get from him than what, they, than what they're willing to give or, or give up for him. Now, I was myself very much a fan of Jesus in different seasons of my life before stepping into, into relationship with him. As a young man, as a young adult, I was, I was chasing after life. I was uh, pursuing my education. I was pursuing my career. I was starting and, and, and developing and raising a family. And I found myself interested in, and intrigued by Jesus in different ways at different times in my life. As I look back, in hindsight, I, I believe Jesus was calling me and, and pursuing me through it all. 
but it was a process in every way, a long process actually that played out over many, many years. But for the most part, earlier on in my life, I looked to Jesus primarily for what he could do for me and how he could help me out with the plan that I had for my life. And so on occasion, I would, I would seek after him, hoping he might help me out, hoping he might help me out with my career, hoping he might help me out with my confidence, hoping he might help me out in my relationships, in my family life, hoping that he might help me out with the, the life that I had so carefully mapped out for myself. But here's the thing, at every turn, I was never really interested in Jesus I was most interested in what he could do for me and for my life and for my future. I was a fan of Jesus. I was most certainly uh, crowding him with my needs and with my expectations, looking to him to advance my personal agenda without really wanting to be troubled by his agenda. I was a fan in every way, but I was not a follower. And I would go to church occasionally at different points in my life, especially when I when I needed something from him, especially when I needed something from him, without ever realizing that I was, I was missing the point. I was going to Jesus for all the wrong reasons. And when Jesus didn't come through for me in the ways that I wanted, I'd just kind of uh, throw up my arms and, and move on, living life on my own terms, wondering if this Jesus really had anything to offer for me after all or wondering if it was all just wishful thinking on my part. And the truth is, we all do it at some level, don't we? We're all fans of Jesus at some level. We all go to Jesus at times with our own agendas kind of leading the way without concerning ourselves with His. And I think this passage here has something to say to that, to that confused fan within each one of us. Now, fans were not the only ones in this crowd. The crowd also included some who opposed Jesus, some who uh, resisted Jesus. And these are the foes of Jesus. We'll call them foes. And we see some of these foes up in verse 6. Jesus, he was annoying and angering the religious establishment uh, in every way. We saw that in last week's passage. He had, he had healed a man on the Sabbath, right? And, and the religious leaders known as the Pharisees, they were pretty fired up about it. And the truth is they had come all the way from Jerusalem to, to dig up dirt on Jesus, and they, and they got exactly what they came for. And that's why in verse 6 it says the Pharisees went out and they immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Now, these two groups, the Herodians and the, the Pharisees, these are two groups who normally never would have interacted at all, much less collaborated on anything, and yet they were working together here to, to trip Jesus up and to, and to take him down. And so there were not only fans in this crowd, there was opposition within this crowd as well. It's true of every crowd, really. There are fans and foes of Jesus in this crowd and in every crowd. And while fans of Jesus look to him to, to advance their agenda, foes see Jesus as a, as a threat to their agenda. You see, these Pharisees, they had things pretty good. They, they had much power. They had, they had much prestige. They were calling the shots in many ways among the Jewish people and among the Jewish nation. And Jesus, he was, he was rocking their boat pretty aggressively along the way whenever he interacted with the, the religious people of the day. 
in the ways that he was calling them out and in the ways he was confronting them with a message they did, they did not expect or understand. You see, Jesus, he came with a message of, of grace. He came saying it's not about what you can do or how you can measure up, which is what the Pharisees were all about. No, Jesus came saying it's about me and it's about what I'm going to do to, to measure up for you. But none of this message of grace was sitting so well with the Pharisees, right? They didn't didn't like it one bit because the truth is grace always poses a a serious threat to religion and to the religious. You see, the Pharisees, they believe their, their standing with God and their position in the religious establishment was based on what they did. It was based on their their moral performance. It was based on their ability to follow all the rules. And so this message that Jesus was was bringing, it was resisted and opposed because it confronted their their worldview. It it challenged their thinking and their motives. It undermined the very fabric and foundation of of their power structure and their influence. And so they didn't like his message or his claims because of what it might mean to their lives and to their livelihood. Even in the face of great miracles and signs before their very eyes, these Pharisees, they resisted and refused the truth about Jesus because he was a threat to their way of life. He was a threat to their careers. He was a threat to their religion. Malcolm Muggeridge said that people do not believe lies because they have to, but because they want to. And these Pharisees, they didn't want to believe the truth about Jesus, and so they They didn't believe the truth about Jesus. They believed their own lies instead because they wanted to, because they needed to, in order to to protect the lifestyle that they believed best for themselves. Now, at some of the same times that I I was a fan of Jesus as a young man, as a young adult, as I was exploring his teachings, there there were a lot of things that I didn't like so much about what he had to say also. Christianity in some ways seemed pretty, pretty challenging. It seemed like there were a lot of rules and regulations. It seemed pretty confining in a lot of ways. And there seemed to be a lot of things that Jesus said in a number of different areas that if I was to take those seriously, they would have been a real threat to how I was living and how I intended to continue living. I wanted to live freely. I wanted to live large. I wanted to be significant and successful. I wanted to have influence. And I wanted to use my success to live life to the fullest as I saw it. I wanted to call my own shots, and I did for a long time. I did all of the things that culture was communicating to me, would make me significant, would give me a sense of value and worth in the eyes of the world. But what culture was telling me seemed to be at odds in many cases with what the Bible was telling me, that was for sure. The Bible seemed to suggest I needed to do all of these things. It suggests I need to uh, follow all these rules. I had to sacrifice in all of these different ways with my time, with my finances, with my lifestyle. But I was just a fan of Jesus, a very fickle fan of Jesus who wasn't prepared to, to submit to Jesus, not in not in any ways that would interfere with the agenda that I had for my life. And so I spent most of my life either not thinking about Jesus at all 
or going to him occasionally when I needed something as a fan, while at the same time pushing back and resisting some of his teachings as a foe. But I wasn't following him. I I might have told myself at the time I was following him, but I wasn't. And I spent most of my life in that mode as a fickle fan of Jesus, as a foe of Jesus in certain areas, until, until just a few years back when, when things changed. Everything changed in my life when I experienced what it, what it means to be in relationship with him. And that's when I became a follower instead of a fan. I can say with sincerity today that I am a follower of uh, Jesus Christ. I, I love Jesus. He, he truly changed my life in a powerful an unexpected way. And I certainly don't go to him like I used to. But if I'm going to be honest, if we're going to be honest, uh, just as there's still a fan in each one of us, there's a foe in each one of us too. There are still aspects of each one of our lives, even as followers of Jesus, that are threatened by him. There are areas in each of our lives in which we resist the lordship of, of Jesus over those areas. We kind of we push back. We, we treat Jesus as a foe when he speaks into certain aspects and areas of our lives that, that we may not be comfortable with. And so what part of Jesus' teachings do you tend to push back on and resist? Maybe you don't like so much what he has to say about sacrifice or suffering. Maybe you don't like uh, what he has to say so much about forgiveness or, or about generosity or humility and putting others before yourself. Maybe you don't like what Jesus has to say about sexuality or marriage. And so where do you push back? How is your life and your lifestyle most threatened by the teachings of Jesus? These questions are important because these questions can help us uh, begin to expose and break down those uh, areas where where we are resisting Jesus as a foe rather than trusting him as a follower. And so we've got this crowd. It's a a confused and chaotic crowd in a lot of ways. And in this crowd, there are fans of Jesus and there are foes of Jesus and there are surely other types as well. But then look at what Jesus does next. From from out of this crowd, from from out of the confusion and the chaos of this crowd, Jesus does something really interesting here. We see in verse 13 that Jesus, he he went up on the mountain and called some from out of the crowd to, to come to him. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now that's pretty interesting, right? Jesus, he calls to himself those whom he desires. And it's true, he's calling the apostles here in this moment, and that's a big deal. That's, that's unique in some important ways, but, but the call of Jesus and the reason for it is the, is the same for each and every follower of Jesus. He calls those whom he desires. And what's pretty clear is we look at those he actually called here, those he desired, And those he continues to call to this very day is that we're not necessarily talking about an impressive group of people here. This was a group of very average, very ordinary people who came and and lived very average and very ordinary lives. 
Jesus was not calling these guys in any way because of what they brought to the table. He did not call them because of anything they had done or deserved. He called them because he desired them. And he desired them in spite of them because he knew what he was going to accomplish in them and through them. And Jesus, he continues to work to this very day in the same way, right? Choosing for himself average and and ordinary people, calling to himself unlikely and unimpressive people, loving and pursuing at times unknown and unnamed people because he desires to do so. Now, if you're a Christian, think about that for a moment. You're not a Christian because you were impressive to God in any way. You're not a a Christian because you're really smart and you figured things out on your own. You're not a Christian because you measured up in any way. You're a Christian because he desired to call you to himself. Another translation of that same word is that he, he wished to have you, and so he called you. Still another translation of the same Greek word is that Jesus willed, willed or purposed to call you. And places like Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 remind us of this very dynamic that, that you were chosen by Jesus before you, were, before you wanted anything to do with him. In fact, you were chosen by Jesus before you were even born, before anything, anything at all was even created the Bible tells us you were chosen by God and set apart. And so the truth is, it's not your doing. Your salvation is not your own doing. It's not my doing. It's it's his doing. And that's why in John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus would say, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And so friends, what this means is you did not become a Christian because you somehow seized the truth. You became a Christian because by the grace of God, you were seized by the truth as Jesus chose you and and called you to himself because he desired to do so. And that's pretty amazing, right? It's pretty humbling, isn't it? And so he calls and summons those whom he purposes. But importantly, we see that his call does require an answer. Jesus compels a response from those he calls. He initiates, right? But we respond. Jesus called the 12 here, but they had to do something about it, right? And verse 14 says, those who he called, they they came to him. They responded to his call in faith. They believed him. They trusted him with their lives and with their futures. And they came to him when he called. And so I'd like to ask you this evening, have you done that? Have you given him your answer? If you're sitting here today and you're not a Christian, I'd ask you to consider that perhaps the reason you're sitting here in this very moment is because Jesus is, is pursuing you and, and calling you and, and, and drawing you to himself because he desires to do so. He desires you and has, has purposed and willed that you, would, that you would step out of the crowd and come to him. If you're sensing that, if you're experiencing that in any way, my hope is that you'll answer him today. My prayer is that you'll respond to him today in faith, trusting that what he did on the cross was enough. It was enough to put you in right relation with your God as you turn to Jesus in faith. 
And so Jesus is calling his followers to himself here in this passage. And as he does, we're going to see him offering up some very important clarifications for us. Clarification on who he is and why he came. Clarification on why he calls people to himself in the first place. And clarification on what it means to follow him. And one key clarification here that Jesus is making is that his followers are not part of the crowd. Followers of Jesus are called out of the crowd. They're called out of the crowd and into something new, into into something different. Jesus is going to make clear here and elsewhere that there's far more to his message than him meeting your needs or giving you a comfortable life. He's going to make clear that, that when you step out of the crowd, what's most important is not what Jesus can do for you or what you can do for Jesus. What's most important is, is who he is to you and, and who you are to him. He's also going to make clear that when he calls you out of the crowd, when he calls you according to his uh, purposes, he will, he will fashion you into that which he intends for you to become. It may take time, but he will get it done. It, it may feel like a struggle more often than not, but he is making it happen. He will continue to make it happen. And that's precisely why the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, reminds us that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Because you see, followers of Jesus are, are created and crafted by his call, and as a consequence of his call, Followers of Jesus are created and crafted by his call. The language used by Mark in this regard is very interesting. It's very instructive. It's language that's actually very active. The language uh, here that Mark, uh, that Mark uses suggests that Jesus is doing far more than, than passively calling people into something and then expecting them to do the rest. Instead, the language here paints a pretty a fascinating picture of Jesus creating and crafting those whom he calls. And what we're going to see here is that those who uh, Jesus calls to himself as followers, they're uh, created and crafted by Jesus, for Jesus, and with Jesus. First, followers are crafted by Jesus. Look at verse 14. After Jesus called to himself those whom he desires, it says he appoints, appointed those he called. He appointed the twelve as apostles. And that word appointed, it's an interesting one. It's actually a pretty tough one for the translators. Appointed is not the only possible translation here, and it's not necessarily the best one. There's much more going on with the underlying Greek word here than appointing the twelve. The Greek word also means to, to make or to create. It's actually a word that, that's used to refer to an artist creating a work of art. And so this language, it points to a remarkably active role played by Jesus in the lives of those whom he calls to himself. He didn't merely appoint the twelve, he, he made the twelve. He, he created them by his very call. He didn't look at these guys and think, uh, oh great, these guys really have what it takes. And so he appointed them as apostles and, and named them as such. No, they didn't have what it took at all. He didn't recognize that they had what it took. He, he gave them what it took. And he does the same with us too. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says that you and I are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And get this, the word translated as workmanship is a Greek word that, uh, it's a Greek word from which we get our, we get our word poem or poetry. And so friends, as a follower of Jesus, this means you're a work of art. You're a work of art in progress, to be sure, but a work of art nonetheless, the Lord's work of art, being carefully created and crafted by by the artist himself as you follow him and trust him. And your life is like a a poem being crafted as a, a creative expression of the the inner vision of the poet himself as you trust him and follow him in faith. And so followers of Jesus are created and crafted by Jesus, by his active hand at work in our lives, forming and fashioning us into something altogether new. But we also see here that followers of Jesus are crafted not only by Jesus, but for Jesus. This Jesus, he has a new purpose and a new priority for you when he calls you to himself. Look at verse 14 again. Jesus is uh, talking about why he's calling the 12 and, and, and why he calls us, and that is so that, he might, so that he might send us out. He calls us in so that he can send us out, and it says two things here, to, to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And so you might be wondering, what, what's that about? I'm no preacher, and and what's this about casting out demons? Now, I know there's been a lot of talk in the book of Mark about demons and the demonic, and that's going to continue. There's more to come, and we'll be diving pretty deep on this topic and on this theme uh, later on at a a minimum when we hit Mark chapter 5. But for now, if if we stand back a bit here and we think about what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is saying... He's actually sending his followers out into the world to do two things, to promote and and champion truth and to liberate people from from what binds them. He's sending his followers into the world to declare truth, to to proclaim truth, and to expose darkness and to expose deception. Deception. In a very fundamental way, he's sending his followers into the world to to serve others in in word and in deed rather than to serve self. And this is precisely what every follower of Jesus is called in and then sent out to do. Jesus challenges his followers to a radically other-oriented, selfless and sacrificial approach to this life. And this type of other-focused, other-oriented life, it can take on many different forms, to be sure. But it should be happening in each and every life, at some level, for every follower of Jesus. And so I'd ask you today, how is that going in your life? Is your life more about serving others or being served by others? It's an important question because the answer might have as much might matter as much for you as it does for those you may be serving. And here's why I say that. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, he says you need to, need to lose yourself in order to find yourself. 
And now I spent my whole life trying to find myself. I could never get there on my own, but I tried. I tried really hard, but I, I could not find myself by serving myself and serving my own agenda. I could not find myself by pouring myself out into my coursework or my career. I could not get there by concerning myself with power or success. I could not find myself by serving my own comfort or my own pleasure. I tried. I tried for a long time, but I was, I was looking in the wrong places. I was looking in the wrong ways. I was looking for myself by focusing on myself when what I needed more than anything else was to lose myself. Jesus says, instead of trying to find yourself by focusing on yourself, you need to, you need to get outside yourself, and you need to get over yourself. And you need to instead try to find and, and focus on other selves. Jesus can give you an identity that's grounded, that's anchored, that can withstand any storm. But what's interesting is that you won't get there in the ways that you might think. The truth is you can sit around all you want contemplating your issues and trying to figure out who you are and why you are the way you are. But it's like peeling an onion there's layer after layer, and you can go on for what seems like forever, spinning your wheels and all the while staying in the very same spot that you started in. Instead of trying to find out who you are, maybe you should help others find out who they are. Maybe you should serve others and invest in others and pour your life out for others. And the outcome in your heart and in your life, it may, it may very well surprise you greatly. And so we can't find ourselves directly by focusing on ourselves and on our situations. We find ourselves actually by shifting the focus off ourselves and being sent out with a new purpose for Jesus to, to serve others, to, to meet needs, to show the gospel with our lives, to share the gospel with our mouths. And Jesus, he sets the pace on this, doesn't he? After all, he came not to be served, but to serve. He came not to, not to bring judgment against us, but instead to take on that judgment for us. And we see it at every turn in his life. We see Jesus being other-oriented, other-focused, being selfless and sacrificial at every turn in his incarnation itself, in his life, in his ministry, and most profoundly at the cross. We see him again and again relentlessly serving others and meeting needs in front of him, so much so that those around him at times were confused and confounded and even concerned by what he was doing, including his own family. Look at verses 20 to 21 there. It says, then, when he, then he went home and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And so the crowd had gathered again, looking to Jesus to meet their needs. And again, we find him serving those who came to him and, and meeting those needs that were before him, even though he knew that many of these same people that, that were coming to him still did not fully understand who he was or, or why he came. At a time when he probably wanted and, and needed a break, Jesus was again putting others 
before himself, serving rather than being served, counting others as more significant than himself, to the point of forgetting to take care of himself and his own needs. They were so busy serving others and meeting needs before him that they weren't, they weren't eating, they forgot to eat. Their focus was quite clearly not on themselves. And when Jesus' family, when they heard about it, they went out to take control of the situation. They went out to take control of Jesus. They went out to seize him, it says, because they were convinced by what they were seeing and hearing that he was not thinking straight. Jesus and his disciples were so focused on others and meeting the needs of others that his family was convinced that he had lost his mind. And friends, may it be the same with us. May we be a people who count others as more important than ourselves. May we be a people who give our lives to serving rather than being served. And may we be a people who do these things so selflessly and so sacrificially and so consistently that those around us might think that we've lost our minds too. Because I believe it's in doing these very things and shifting the focus off of ourselves and onto one another and onto onto those around us It's there that we'll find out who we really are. It's happening in my own life as as, as we speak. I continue to find myself and my identity in Him by losing myself, just as He said I would. As I serve others, instead of worrying about myself and my identity, I find myself actually with a, a stronger identity. And I find myself feeling much a joy in being used by Him and used for Him and in watching the ways that He's creating and crafting me into whom He desires me to be. Finally, as a follower of Jesus, you're being created and crafted not only by Jesus and, and for Jesus, but also, also with Jesus. Take a look at verse 14 again. Verse 14 tells us the main reason that Jesus calls people out of the crowd. It says, so that, so that they might be with him. Jesus calls people to himself first and foremost so that they might be with him, in relationship with him. This is, this is language of intimacy. And so when he calls you, he's calling you out of rules. He's calling you out of religion and ritual. He's calling you out of yourself and your striving, and he's calling you into real relationship. The Bible holds out a promise for every Christian of a very real and very uh, remarkable experience of love and intimacy and relationship for those who step out of the crowd to follow Jesus and to be with Him. And so verse 14 reminds us as as followers of Jesus what, what it's all about. And it's all about being with Him. It's about being connected to Him in relationship with Him by the Holy Spirit. It's one of the main reasons Jesus sent the Holy Spirit in the first place, to to dwell with us and in us, to to connect us in relationship to Jesus, enabling us to to experience Him, to, to hear from Him, to walk and talk with Him, to laugh and cry with Him in living and loving relationship. None of this other stuff works otherwise. If you're not not with him, it doesn't work. It's, It's empty. 
If you're not with him, it's nothing more than man-powered, man-centered religion that's devoid of spiritual power. And that's why Christianity is not primarily about what Jesus can, can do for you, and it's not primarily about what you can do for Jesus. Christianity is primarily about being in relationship with him. To be honest, for much of my life, I was very skeptical about this whole relationship idea. People talking about a personal relationship with uh, Jesus and being born again. I wasn't sure what to make of all that. I wasn't sure I was really buying that. What I wanted most of all, in some cases, was for these, uh, these, these folks to kind of tone it down a bit about Jesus. But then everything changed. Everything changed in my life quite unexpectedly and quite abruptly. Jesus, he broke into my life. He broke down my hardened heart in a highly relational uh, way. And I experienced being with him in a way that I did not know was possible. He made himself known to me relationally and, and experientially. And I, I, I have not been the same since. Being with him changed my heart, changed my marriage, changed my family, changed my life. And being with him continues to change my perspective and my priorities, my purpose in life. For a long time, I went to him with my needs and with my agenda, but now more than anything else, I just want to be with him. Because by his grace, when I'm with him, he shows me again and again that he's better. He shows me again and again the surpassing worth of knowing him and being with him. Ravi Zacharias articulates very well some of the differences between going to him and being with him. He says this, he says, I came to him because I did not know which way to turn. I remained with him because there is no other way I wish to turn. I came to him longing for something I did not have. I remain with him because I have something that I will not trade. I came to him as a stranger. I remain with him in the most intimate of friendships. I came to him unsure about my future. I remain with him certain about my destiny. My hope and prayer for us as a church is that we would be a people who are defined by being with him and allowing that in turn to fuel and empower all that we do for him. That's the correct order of things, right? Being, being with him first. Now, you may be thinking that's all good and well, but I don't, I don't really get it. I'm not really feeling it. How can I be with him in relationship in this sort of way? And it's all by His grace, it's all by His timing, but, but one way we can step in this direction is simply by going to Him as a person, going to Him as a person to be known, going to Him as a person to be loved. We can go to Him in the same way we'd approach and, and pursue any relationship that was important to us, by observing Him, by studying Him by wanting to know what he likes and what he doesn't like, by understanding his character and his concerns, by spending time together in prayer, 
by getting to know him better through his revealed word, by asking questions and listening. He will draw near to you as you you humbly draw near to him. That's a promise that we've been given. And as you do, as you're with him, things will change. You'll see yourself differently. You'll see the world differently. You'll see other people differently. But most of all, you'll see that when you're with him, when you're in, when you're in relationship with him, you, you lose track of yourself. You lose sight of yourself. And that's a good thing. Because remember, as you lose yourself to him, that's where you'll find yourself. He'll show you who you are. And he'll show you who he's crafting you to become. Now, if this Jesus has called you out of the crowd, if you've stepped out of the crowd, and if you're a follower of Jesus today, I want to invite you to approach the table and share in the Lord's Supper together at this time. And as we do, as we take the bread, as we dip that bread in the cup, let's remember and reflect on the reality that Jesus, he he gave his body and he shed his blood so that you and I could step out of the crowd and step into relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for calling us out of the confusion and the chaos of the crowd. Thank you for the ways in which you are at work in our hearts and in our lives, creating and crafting us according to to your call and your purposes. Would you expose those areas in our lives where we're approaching you as a fan? Would you uh, break down those areas where we may be resisting you as a foe? And God, would you make us increasingly faithful followers who know and understand the surpassing worth and power of being with you? Amen.